0: This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Do you have your Bibles today? How many of you have your Bibles? Alright, we're going to be using these quite a bit. Um, there's a pretty fascinating story. If you have your Bibles, go to Acts chapter 18. There was a guy named Apollos. Acts chapter 18, verse 24. The Bible says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. And this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he only knew the baptism of John. Pay attention to what the Bible says about Apollos, okay? This a description. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ." I like this guy, Apollos, because he's, he's very bold and he's very outgoing, he's outspoken, he's very educated, the Bible says he can teach the Bible accurately. Notice what it says in verse 18, he was mighty, or verse 24, he was mighty in the Scriptures. Don't we all wish we could be mighty in the Scriptures, right? Mighty in the Scriptures, and he was instructed, in verse 25, in the way of the Lord, and fervent in spirit. He spoke and he taught accurately the things concerning the Lord. This is a, this is a good description. If, if somebody could say this about me all of the time, I'd be very happy. Okay? Not everything that I've ever said has been very accurate. I'm human, okay? Forgive me. But he, the Bible says he was accurate in the things of the Lord. But he had one deficiency. What was it? He only knew the baptism of John. And he began to go and he began to teach and he he was helping the disciples in Ephesus, the Bible says. He came to Ephesus and he preached every day about the Gospel. Here's somebody who's educated in the Bible, probably knows it cover to cover. He can explain Jesus through the Messiah's prophecies. But yet in verse 28, he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the Scriptures that Jesus is Christ. He is out there doing active evangelism. But when you get down to chapter 19 in verse 7, it says, Now the men were about twelve in all. That means after every day of him going out, preaching publicly in the synagogues, professing you know, the Bible, showing you know, from Scripture about Jesus, telling people about Christ, he only had twelve converts. Does that sound like great success? you can say no it doesn't okay that doesn't 12 people for all that work and so when paul comes in chapter 19 it happened while apollos was at corinth that paul having passed through the upper regions came to ephesus and he only found 12 people and he said did you receive the holy spirit he's he's saying why couldn't this man turn the town upside down with his head knowledge with his Ability to reason from the scriptures, he should have had success. And he goes right to the to the punchline: Have you received the Holy Spirit? And they don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. And so the Bible continues that that he instructed them about the Holy Spirit. In verse four: He said, "John baptized with the baptism of repentance; the people should believe on him who would come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. And you know that after this, Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians. There was a booming church growing in Ephesus when they received the message of the Holy Spirit. The man was brilliant, he taught from the Bible. Excellent. But he didn't have the Holy Spirit. I don't want to say failure, because he had converts. But he didn't reach the potential. Many of us, I think, realize that the evangelism we do is unsuccessful, or it doesn't have the fruit that we want it to have, because we haven't seen the Holy Spirit's power. We try to preach without the power of the Spirit. Notice what the Desire of Ages says, "...the preaching of the Word will be of no avail..." without the continual presence and aid of the Holy Spirit. One might be able to present the letter of the Word of God. He might be familiar with its commands and promises, but unless the Holy Spirit sets home the truth, no soul will fall on the rock and be broken. It doesn't matter how good you can explain the doctrines of the Antichrist, or how good you can you know, tell the dates of the investigative judgment and, and all of the different Adventist beliefs, how many Bible texts you can give about the Sabbath, without the Holy Spirit to impress the truths on the mind. What does it say? No soul will fall on the rock and be broken. Nobody. You can preach a thousand sermons without converting one person if you don't have the Holy Spirit. Think of all of the wasted time. Right? If you're preaching without results, we're just wasting our time if we don't have the Holy Spirit. And I think if we take an accurate look today in our church, many of us are preaching or being preached to without receiving the power that the Holy Spirit has to offer. Are you with me? We haven't seen it in our day. Whatever knowledge they have of the Holy Spirit is vague, indefinite, inadequate. His personality, power, and presence are not understood. They are largely ignorant of His program and provisions and are sadly what? Barren of His fruits. Many of us, we don't see the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We don't experience the power of the Holy Spirit because we are largely ignorant of His program and provisions. We'll take questions at the end. So it's important for us to know about the Holy Spirit, right? We can see that we have, uh, from what Valmy shared, we have more than enough, more than, uh, I don't know what the right, how to, the right way to put this is, but there's more than enough resources for us. More, the Lord has made more than enough provisions for us to receive the Holy Spirit. But it's just that we don't understand how. Okay? Many of us have been preaching like Apollos without knowing the Holy Spirit's power rather than like Paul who experienced it on a daily basis. That is the reality that we live in today. I want the fruits of the Spirit, don't you? So how do we get it? We have to understand what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and what has to take place for us to be filled. If you have your Bibles, go to John chapter 14. What chapter did I say? John chapter 14, All right, you're with me. I know these sessions can be long and I'm at the second half, so after breakfast and after an hour you're probably already tired. John chapter 14, starting in verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you, in verse 20, and that day you will know that I am In my Father, and you in me, and I where? In you. So the Holy Spirit is the one who is supposed to dwell within us. The Bible says that He dwells with you and in you, and then I in you. If you look in Ephesians chapter 4, 16, Paul says that the Holy Spirit is the one who fills your life inside. Over and over again, the Bible says the Holy Spirit is the one who is in you. Filling you inside. But then in verse 20, the Bible says, On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I, who's talking? Jesus. Jesus in where? In you. The Holy Spirit is the very presence of Jesus in the life see that from the text? The Holy Spirit is Jesus' presence dwelling in us. Notice this statement. In the plan of restoring in men the divine image, it was provided that the Holy Spirit should move upon human minds and be as the presence of Christ, a molding agency upon the human character. The impartation of the Spirit was the impartation of the very life of Christ. The Holy Spirit is Christ's representative but divested of the personality of humanity and independent thereof. The Holy Spirit is the vital presence of God. You hear that? So the Holy Spirit's job is to be in us, the presence of Jesus in our lives everywhere we go. Personal fellowship with Jesus makes all the difference in our Christian experience. We need His Spirit revealing His life his power, working out his obedience in our lives to transform us and make us real Christians. Can't have it any other way. The second thing that the Holy Spirit does is it brings the likeness of Christ's character into our life. If you look at the disciples before Pentecost, you realize that they were a very selfish group of people. They wanted to be the greatest. They had a lot of pride, a lot of ambition. And then you look at Jesus who was unselfish very humble, and you think, they did not get His character while He was on earth. Because even up until the end, they were still arguing about who was going to be greater. But when the Holy Spirit was poured out, the results were complete heart transformation. The message of, of the Savior was carried to the entire inhabited world. They were motivated to do radical missions in remote places of of the world. And if we think it's rough today, it's probably even rougher back then. When the Holy Spirit was poured out, He brought those characteristics, the disposition, the very likeness of Jesus. We've got uh, this statement from Testimonies to the Church one subject of emulation swallowed up all others talking about the disciples. The only ambition of the believers was to reveal the likeness of Christ's character and to labor for the enlargement of His kingdom. The presence of Jesus in our lives and the likeness of Jesus' characters in ours. And finally, if you turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Finally, as in what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The third thing that the Holy Spirit gives us is the power of Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Bible says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We heard a little bit about this last night, if you were at the meeting, where, start with my church, right? Effect the cause is how Justin put it but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The the power is from the presence of Jesus. The presence of the Spirit with God's workers will give the proclamation of the truth a power that not all the honor or glory of the world could give. The Bible and the Holy Spirit doesn't give us political power like some people would have us believe. It doesn't give us wealth or riches or great influence necessarily. But it gives us power to proclaim the truth of God. People have it backwards. We want the the power, the influence, the money, the prosperity of the gospel without the sacrifice when we need the sacrifice to get the power In Colossians 1:29 I like this that Paul talks about how God's power has worked in his life Colossians chapter 1 verse 29 the Bible, we'll start in verse 28 Him, Jesus, we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, striving according to His working, which works in me mightily. Paul had this mighty power to proclaim the gospel message because God was working in him, giving him the power to proclaim the truth. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to have the presence of Jesus, the likeness of Jesus, and the power of Jesus. And we need that in order to proclaim the message that we have as Adventists. We need the power of Jesus, but we can't have that without His likeness. And we can't have His likeness without His presence. That's what it means to be filled. And I want that in because I'm tired of seeing the church go about preaching and teaching like Apollos instead of like Paul. Without results when if we just had the Holy Spirit, lives would be changed. The church would be a place a lot different than it is now. So how do we have the infilling of the Holy Spirit? That's what we all want to know, right? That's why we're here. How can I have the Holy Spirit in my own life? In Acts chapter 1, this is where we find what the disciples were doing. And I think it's probably something more simple then we would like. If it was some complex formula, we would memorize it. You know, x is equal to negative b plus or minus the square, you know, all these quadratic formulas that we memorize in Algebra 2, Algebra 1 or wherever. It was a long time ago. If it was something complex, we would memorize it, but it's something more simple. The Bible says in, in Acts chapter 1, Verse 4, the conditions for the promise. And being assembled together with them, He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So as Jesus was ascended into heaven, He told them to stay in Jerusalem and wait. And I think this is probably something that we're not that good at. We're not good at waiting, right? We want to at least do something. At least that's how I am. I can't just sit around that easily and wait. And many of us, you know, we're like when I was a kid, I used to like to play some pranks and I would go to my neighbor's house. I'd ring the doorbell and run away, right? They would come to the door, open the door, and, and you know, I would get a good laugh because nobody would be there. They'd close the door and I'd go and do it again and run away. And many of us were kind of like that when we wait for the Lord. We pray for the Holy Spirit or pray for something else. We ring the doorbell of heaven, but before Jesus answers the door, we're gone. See you later. Right? Waiting is not something we're good at. But the Lord told the disciples to wait at Jerusalem. I'm going to come back to this in a a minute. Then you get to verse 14, and the Bible says they were all continued with one accord. We're talking about unity, so we're going to look at this verse even more. But this gives us a glimpse of what the Christian community was like. Do they have differences? Yeah. Yeah. You can't put two people together without getting some difference. (laughs) Okay? But did that stop them from getting the Holy Spirit? It didn't. The Greek word here is homothemadon. Thankfully, nobody can pronounce Greek correctly, so I don't have to worry about my pronunciation. And... uh, I found this uh, interesting thing on Bible Gateway. That uh, this Greek word is kind of uh, gives the imagery of of two ideas to rush along and in unison. Okay, so they're in one accord. They're rushing along in unison. It's it's like this concert. It's musical where the sound, the notes, which are different, harmonize in pitch and in tone. As the instruments of one great concert under the direction of a concertmaster, so the Holy Spirit blends together the lives of the members of the church. Have you ever been to an orchestra and heard just the most beautiful music? Some of you have musical abilities that far exceed mine. One person can be playing a tune and if you listen to them by themselves, that tune might not sound so good. The notes might conflict with somebody else's notes sitting just a few spaces over. But when you put them all together with the entire orchestra, you get a sound that you wouldn't experience anywhere else. This is the the picture, the idea that the early church, the community of believers before Pentecost was experiencing this kind of unity. Even though not all the notes were the same, the sound was great. You get the picture? They're rushing along in unison, moving forward together. And then the Bible says also in verse 14 that they were in one accord in prayer and in supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with His brethren. Here they are. They're praying in unison with prayer and supplication. And I think this is key because Jesus says to ask for the Holy Spirit. How much more willing is God to give good gifts to us than we are to give good gifts to our children. So prayer and supplication. I want to read you uh, one statement. Under the training of Christ, the disciples had been led to feel their need of the Spirit. No longer were they a collection of independent units or discordant, conflicting elements. No longer were their hopes set on worldly greatness They were of one accord, of one heart and soul. The days of preparation were days of deep heart-searching. This isn't prayer like we pray every morning. These are days and nights of agonizing prayer. The disciples felt their spiritual need and cried out to the Lord for the holy unction that was to fit them for the work of saving souls. They prayed with intense earnestness. I like the intensity that this is written. They prayed with intense earnestness for a fitness to meet men and in their daily intercourse to speak words that would lead sinners to Christ. Putting away all differences, all desire for the supremacy, they came close together in Christian fellowship. Christ filled their thoughts. The advancement of his kingdom was their aim. In mind and character they had become like their master and men took knowledge with them that they had been with Jesus." This is the kind of praying that was going on. It wasn't something that comes by just casual prayer. You can't have the Holy Spirit without asking. And Jesus says that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Sometimes we pray and we don't see the answers, and so we stop praying because we figure God hurt us the first time. Have your parents ever gotten mad at you when you asked for something and they didn't respond right away, so you asked again? And then you asked a third time? And then they're like, I, told, I heard you the first time. Okay? <laughs> the Lord is not like that. He heard us the first time, the second time, and the third time, and He wants to hear it again the fourth time until He answers. Finally, you get to verse 20 in Acts chapter 1, and Peter starts quoting Scripture, and he says, It is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. They weren't just singing hymns and praying for these 10 days or these 50 days after the, res- the ascension. They're involved in deep Bible study. They're looking at the Bible and seeing these things in prophecy and then they realize that they have a work to do and so they're applying the Bible to their lives. They said, let another take his place and so they elected another Disciple to take his place. They're seeing themselves in Bible prophecy and making the applications. Bible study is the most important thing that we can do next to prayer or along with prayer. I don't think you can separate them. There is no substitute for the Bible, no devotional book better written than the Bible. Amen. <laughs> There's nothing better. You can't substitute it. And so as the disciples were praying with one accord, as they were waiting in Jerusalem, as they were living together, they were studying their Bibles. You can't have the Holy Spirit apart from the Bible because as Valmy said, the Holy Spirit is the one who gave the Bible to us through the process of revelation, inspiration, and illumination. Revealing the content to the minds of the Bible writers. Inspiring them as they wrote down what they, what they knew. And then illuminating our minds as we read it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So finally you get to Acts chapter 2 and in verse 1 you say, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. In verse 4 of chapter 1, Jesus said that they shouldn't depart from Jerusalem, but to do what? To wait. And then you get to chapter 2, verse 1, and it says they were all in one place. That tells me that they were obedient to what Jesus said. Imagine if Peter had gone to, to Ephesus instead of staying at Jerusalem, what would have happened? The Holy Spirit would have been poured out and Peter wouldn't have gotten it. He wouldn't have preached that sermon. 3,000 people wouldn't have responded to His call. You can't have the Holy Spirit while being disobedient to the commands in Scripture, to the requirements of the Bible. I remember uh, there was one time where I was praying and I was asking the Lord to to show me what was next. I, I was finishing school and I wanted to know, you know what kind of work I should be doing, if I should go to grad school, if I should get a job, if I should... You know, uh, probably all of you have been there before, and uh, and I wouldn't get any answer. And so I was talking to uh, to a friend of mine, who's uh, a, an evangelist pastor, and he said something uh, you know pretty profound. And it was in a group setting that he said this: that um, the Lord won't show you something new unless you're following what He's already shown you. So why would the Holy Spirit give us the power when we're not obeying what He's already revealed? It wouldn't happen. Obedience is a prerequisite to receiving the Holy Spirit. So we look at our our lives today. We look at the church today. And it's fair to analyze the conditions of our church. We live in this world. This is our church. We are the ones responsible for changing it or keeping it the same. The decision, the decision is going to be ours. We can have the presence of the Holy Spirit the presence of Jesus, the likeness of his character, the power that comes from his indwelling inside of us, or we can keep things the same. That is our choice. The Bible says in Revelation 18, verse 1, that in the light of the second coming, the earth would be filled with the glory of God. As the earth is filled with the glory of God, we know that this is the the work of the latter reign. And we think, at least the tendency is to think, you know, the glory of God is some great light that's going to shine throughout the world and people are going to be converted. But in reality, it's probably less glorious on the outlook because it's God changing the individual heart inside one life at a time and that's spreading and infecting everybody. And the the glory is the likeness of His character that's spreading, not some artificial light that goes around the world. In heaven's eyes, it probably looks like light because that light is filling our hearts. But in our eyes, that work is just inside me. So you could be experiencing or surrounded by the outpouring of the latter rain and miss it entirely because you can't see what's going on inside. So that work for you and for me is an individual work. We can pray for the Holy Spirit. We can ask for it. But if we're not living in accordance with the Bible, we'll never get it. Does it make sense so far? If you look at your own life and ask if your witness is weak, if you lack power, if you have a character unlike Jesus, we all have work to do. But if we realize that we need to change, the decision and the responsibility rests with us. There's nothing else that we need to worry about. Jesus told a parable and he said that the children of this world are in their day wiser than the children of light. The people in the world are smarter and sometimes wiser than Christians because they make provisions for themselves, for the future. But yet, we neglect our own spiritual lives. So the application of this is for you and for me. It's our choice; it can be filled or not be filled. It's up to us. I want to close with a, one more statement, and then we're going to break up, or we can ask a few questions, and then we'll break up in groups to pray. This, uh, the book *Coming of the Comforter* by Leroy Froom says, "The Holy Spirit came as the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, after the enthronement of Christ in heaven." So it is not until Christ is enthroned king in the individual heart that the personal Pentecost comes. This is our greatest individual need and therefore our greatest collective need. Just as Pentecost came after Jesus was enthroned king of the universe in heaven, our Pentecost won't come until he's enthroned in our hearts. Do you want that enthronement? to have Jesus there I want that this message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC GYC a supporting ministry of the Seventh Day Adventist Church seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant Bible based and Christ centered Christians to download or purchase other resources visit us online at GYC web dot o-r-g